well, with the way you're sitting, it's kind of like, you know, you're you're in a, a cabin on a cruise ship where okay. it's just gently rocking back and forth with the waves. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's a pillow. <laughs> that, that Nobody up. has to know that. Shh, don't don't. Break the world knows it now. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Spilling Ink. We are the talk show that takes you behind the book to meet the authors and professionals in the publishing industry. I've got Jane with me as always. How are you doing, Jane? I'm doing good. Saturday night. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sequestered to the bedroom because we have a two-year-old running around in the rest of the trailer and they're trying to put him down to bed. So, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> lights, sound. <laughs> child. <laughs> yep. That's okay. That's okay. You've got people to hang out with, so it's not so lonely in there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, as always, Katie Salitis. Jay, uh, Jay will be here shortly. He's actually driving home. He tried to call in from his phone, and uh, let's just say that was not the best of connections. So Jay will be back shortly. But before we get started, we have to pay homage to our wonderful sponsors who make it possible for us to stream this show, both on Facebook and YouTube. So our first sponsor of the day is Go Indie Now. They are the online indie artist network. They offer exciting new content weekly, monthly, and seasonally, all of which highlight support and promote indie artists of all forms. You can check them out at goindienow.com, subscribe to their YouTube channel, and follow them on Facebook. And Go Indie Now is beginning its new fall season of programming on Sunday, September 6th. They've got a brand new video posting every day until Christmas from then on out. So definitely check them out. And remember, it's always time to Go Indie Now. How'd I do? Good? You did very good. Perfect. <laughs> I know the boss is watching because he just said hello. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there he is. <laughs> Got to make sure we do it good. Yeah. But anyways, we've got some great new authors to introduce our audience to. Let me go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Mark, hey, tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Katie. It's great to see you. My name is Mark Watson. I am a genre fiction author from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I have three books to my name at the moment. My debut, Death Dresses Poorly, followed by my epic fantasy duology, Catching Hell, Part One Journey and Part Two Destination. And coming up this September 25th, I will release my collection of short stories just sitting here over my corner, over the in the corner here of my shoulder. And it is Between Conversations, Tales from the World of Ryujin. That is a really cool looking cover though, by the way. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about how you're producing that one in just a second, but we wanna introduce our other author, Jeffrey, it's your turn. Tell us a little about yourself. Hi, I'm Jeffrey A. Carver. I write um, hard science fiction novels, well, somewhere in the borderland between hard SF and space opera. And I've been writing since the mid-1970s. And um, one of the things I've been working on for quite a number of years is a series called The Chaos Chronicles. And there was a, a, I was published traditionally for most of my career. And uh, the first part of The Chaos Chronicles was published by Tor Books. And um, the most recent... I, it took me 11 years to write book five, and it was too long to be one book, so now it's two books, books five and six, and that's The Reefs of Time, which I'm going to try to show you here, yeah. and Crucible of Time. Oh, that's pretty. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so those, I wound up not 
publishing traditionally, but uh, publishing independently. At the time, I was part of a, an author co-op called Bookview Cafe, and I got a lot of backup from them. And uh, I had been uh, publishing independently my backlist for a long time, so I was familiar with the whole ebook platform and all that. But this was the first time I tried to do um, print books in a serious way, and also to release a new book as an indie writer. And that was uh, that was quite a steep learning curve for me. Most people, the first time they try and, and publish something on their own, they very quickly learn how many steps are actually involved in the process because when you go from traditional to indie the traditional side of it you have the hard process of getting somebody interested mm -hmm. whereas indie you have to take every single step to make that book your own and there's a lot involved in it and it's not just the production it's the marketing and getting the reach <laughs> it was in particular the marketing and getting yeah. the reach it was a real yeah. major challenge yeah yeah, that, that is, that's the hardest part too. And, and the problem with marketing is it's not one size fits all. So when you go to market your books, you could try things that you see other authors doing and may not see the same results, even if you're in the same genre. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It, it can be a very personal thing as well. It really depends on what it is that you're attempting to achieve. Like if you're, if you're trying to sell a hundred thousand copies, your approach is going to be a whole lot different than if you're only trying to sell a hundred and just make yourself feel better. So right. there, there is no, there is no tried and true path. It's going to be different for everybody. And I have never met another author who was like, wow, you were following the exact same marketing plan that I am. It, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. No, 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 even if like Jane, you had told me about a, a class yeah. learning how to do specifically Amazon advertising, just yeah. the one platform. And you could follow the program to a T and, and between Jane and I, we didn't get the same results. Right. And, and the, the steps seem so simple. They really do. They seem so simple, but when you employ them, you find they out. They didn't look simple at all to me when I looked up how to do that. <laughs> it looked like a time sink from hell. <laughs> well, and there's that's the, the bottom line, though. A lot of good marketing is just consistency with trying to reach the market. Consistency, finding, find, making sure you're hitting the market, because that's a big one. You know, especially, you know, I, I blend genres sometimes and, and, that makes it really hard to sell it. You know, if I sell it to one, they might not like all of the things and the other one, same thing. It's like, you know, I'm not going to make everybody happy because I blended it. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Real questions time. So you said, uh, Jeffrey, you said hard sci-fi. And mm -hmm. I know sci-fi is one of those tricky genres where people can be very particular about it. Is there a major difference between just sci-fi and hard sci-fi? And is that where you find people are really well, particular? Well, if you talk about sci-fi, it covers so much ground um, that it's everything from almost outright fantasy to sociological, psychological. Uh, when people talk about hard science fiction, they really mean work that is somehow grounded in scientific reality, but extrapolated into something different. Um, for the extreme, I don't know, extreme use of that phrase, uh, it's, it's, I won't say a nuts and bolts, but, but some of that, some of the writers write some pretty dense stuff that you really have to be into the science to do that. Now that's not where I come in. I'm, I'm really character oriented, but I try to set my characters into a world that is informed by real science and is 
feels real to somebody who knows something about science. And I do all sorts of crazy things. I have alien science and, and I, I really stretch the boundaries, but I try to keep it connected to a sense of um, reality. Well, for example, in, in this current book, I have, uh, you've probably all heard of quantum entanglement, which is, um, you know, connection between particles at a distance. Well, I took that to an extreme and I had it involving time travel and, and distance between the center of the galaxy and the edge of the galaxy. So mm -hmm. I, I used quantum entanglement and I had actually been to a workshop for science fiction, for science fiction writers on quantum theory, uh, which was a great experience. That's uh, awesome. So I, I, you know, I tried to make it feel real, but at the same time, I was coming most of all from the characters and, and, and what's happening in their lives and why is it important to to us and to the readers. So um, <clears throat> that's why some people look at my work and say, "Yeah, that's hard science fiction." Yeah, and other people say, mm, "Space opera." <laughs> uh, space opera is a little more free flowing and galactic empires and things that are, I don't know. A little more out there on the edge. Your, your Star Trek, so. your Star Wars, those are more space operas rather than hard sci-fi. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this, mm -hmm. okay. I've always wondered because I know a, a lot of times when we put a book out, at least lately, reviewers are very particular and love to find things to call an author out on. And and when it comes to sci-fi, the believability of the science tends to be what they focus on most. Yes. I think it depends a lot on the, the, the reviewers because, um, I mean, the, the, the foremost responsibility is to tell a good story and to engross the reader, regardless of what your hook is. So if, if regardless of where you are on the spectrum of plausible science, if it's not pulling you along as a reader, then it's not going to work. Um, I think that's anything, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah it is. It is. It's any kind of writing. Yeah, it's all about whether the story is interesting enough to keep you turning the pages. So, whether you get your hooks in there, that's right. That's right. Dig them in deep and drag that reader along with you. Yeah. No, I was in a sort of, on one hand, enviable, on the other hand, not so enviable position of continuing a series that had been uh, had four books before it, mm -hmm. but had had a uh, a period of time had passed. So I had a certain. Uh, audience waiting for the books and, and looking forward to them. But that audience was getting on in years a little bit, shall we say, and I needed to reach out to gain a wider audience. And that's a little harder when you're coming in in the beginning of a series to interest new readers in a book that's in the middle. So I was trying to write a story that somebody could just jump into and enjoy, or they could start at the beginning and enjoy it even more by reading the whole story arc. So that was now, what I was aiming for. You had mentioned that the, the book series that, that you held up for us was too big to be a single volume. Now, was that the determination of your publisher or did you determine it needed to be broken into two? I pondered it for a long time. It was about, let's see, I think about 260,000 words, something like that. Wow. Um, and I knew that my publisher was going to squawk over that. Um, they didn't actually, and I'm not so it was a weird thing where I was working with my editor with the publisher before they decided not to, to publish the books. Um, but they didn't reject the books. They just said, you know, it's been too long. We can't successfully do this. And so we, we had an amicable parting 
But I think we all agreed that to publish these books, well, to publish them in print would have been made the a print edition prohibitively expensive. So, right. you know, with ebooks, you can get away with a long book. So it just made more sense to make it um, two volumes. But it really is one story. You get to the end of the first book and you go, eh, where's the next book? Because it 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 really does end in the middle of the story arc. And uh, like I try to make that clear up front. This is part one of two parts. <laughs> you yeah. got to read both parts. Well, yeah. 200,000 words, that's that's definitely a lengthy book. And, and I think most, at least for genre fiction, most readers' expectations are between the 60,000 to 100,000 mark for just standard genre fiction. Would you would you agree with that? I think it's gotten a little longer since then. So each one of these is more yeah. like 130,000 words. But uh, when I was first writing, 60,000 words was kind of the accepted length of a novel. And then it, they got longer and longer and longer. Mark, how about you? Where where do you sit on the word count for your books? I am all over the show. I actually have a very similar story to Jeffrey because I have my Catching Hell duology, which I've marketed it as a duology, and it's the exact same thing. It was a quarter of a million words, and I had to split it into two because it was much too large. And it's the same thing where you just realize when you're at the end of book one, there's a, a little bit of a discrepancy like I found a very natural split in the story when I decided to split it. And so book one is about 120,000 words or so. And then book two picks up the slack. And uh, there is, there's very little that I had to do in order to make it fit that way. But my <laughs> first book, Death Dresses Poorly, was 47,000 words. And it was beginning, middle, and end. No sequels intended. It was just a standalone story. And I was happy with that. And when Between Conversations comes out, now, granted, it's a collection of short stories, but some of them are pushing what I'm told is novelette territory. And now mm -hmm. I'm starting to learn a bunch of new words. And mm -hmm. uh, they are, the, the whole book itself come clocks in at all almost exactly 69,000 words. So I have no hard and fast rule, especially as a pantser, as a purebred pantser, I sit down, I know the story that I want to tell, I have a general understanding of the characters, I know my beginning and I know my end, and then I see where it goes. And sometimes it's a quarter of a million word monster and sometimes it's 45, 46, 47,000 words and I'm happy with that too. So if, if, if I put limitations and rules on it, then I feel as though I'm putting limitation and rules on what I can write and I don't want to do that. I want to write it and see if it works. I have no problems hacking it down after it's all said and done. I, I'm kind of the same as you. I, I set myself an average of where I want to target the book at, but that's not a hard and fast. The story goes for as long as the story needs to go for. If it goes over my estimate, whatever. If it's under my estimate and the story is complete, I don't feel the need of fluffing it up with added words if it doesn't need it. So it, while it's it's good to have a target or an idea of where you want it to be, the story is going to be the story in the end. Hi. My thing was that when I first started writing Catching Hell, and it was taking like a year to write it properly. Now, I, I, I don't write a whole lot. Something that the audience should know is that I write very, very little. I only spend about 45 minutes a day and even that's only on weekdays sitting in my cubicle at work. So I was doing that same thing when I wrote that, but I thought books are supposed to be long. I'd never written a book before. So I'm, I'm like, books are supposed to be long. It's supposed to take a year. And then when it was all done and I had this monstrosity on my hands, it was 
a wake up call to the industry. I had no idea about uh, about word counts and those kinds of things. I just wanted to tell that story, and I told that story, and then I'm like, oh, that no, that story is like way too big, and I, so many people were telling me to split it up. Yeah, and if you're getting readers telling you it's it's too much to handle and it needs to be split up, listen to the readers. Yeah, you know, there's back in the day they used to have what was it the the little penny dreadfuls, the little short you know dime novels that were you know small installment stories that you would look forward to the next installment and and they built up to a complete story a complete series of stories that was one whole major plot but they were nice in those small little chunks and i think readers appreciate those just as much as they appreciate the big epic novels as well well you know perceptions of these things are really fickle my um fourth novel was called the infinity link and it was a for me a very long novel at the time i think it might have been 140 30,000 words, maybe 40,000. Anyhow, it was, a, it was a fat book. And the, the publisher at Tor called me up one day and he said, I really love your book. I just wish it weren't quite so long because, because of the thickness of the spine and how many books you could fit on a rack in a drugstore spinneret. Mm -hmm. And at the time, that's how a lot of paperback books were sold. And so he was just focusing solely on the marketing aspects. And a few years later, they brought out another printing of it and they put a new cover on it and they made it thicker. They printed it on <laughs> thicker paper so that it was actually between a quarter and a half an inch thicker in the spine. And so somewhere in there, somebody had decided that, ah, it makes sense to make it look like a doorstop novel instead mm. of worrying about it being too big. So after that, I didn't I didn't think things as seriously when it came to word length. Yeah. I think I think it all depends on which marketing director is working that day and what yeah. their particular well, take is on it. You see that in the indie world too, you see uh, a lot of indies will go ahead and put out their series, but they'll also put out the anthology or the omnibus edition. Yeah. way to make money from the same story yeah. so you give it to people in different forms and you still make money off of each sale whether it's single book sales or a big you know huge volume mm -hmm. sale mm -hmm. so yeah but it is fickle it's it's whoever is in charge that day of making that decision gets mm -hmm. to decide that now well, we do it's have a totally question different about, between ebooks oh. and print books also well yeah, ebooks oh, yeah. you can't tell the size really you don't know it until you open it up and start yeah. looking at it. Most people don't look at, you know, the actual file length, you know, how right. big it is. Right. You just look at that little bar at the bottom that fills up more and more with every uh, page you turn, uh, uh, right? Yeah. So <laughs> you read for like three hours and then suddenly it's only like this far. You're like, oh, I got myself a real good book here. <laughs> well, and, and also a little trick of the trade too, you know, from, from book formatting is playing with fonts will definitely increase or decrease your page mm -hmm. count without yeah. touching any words. So yeah. if you get somebody who's yeah. printed with a thicker font and less actual printable size on the page, that book's going to look bigger, even though it may not have as many words as another book. This is where economics comes in with so many of us um, selling print books through print on demand. The cost structure is very different from what it used to oh, be. Yes. With, with oh, yes. Running off thousands of copies so that making a book thicker really means you have to charge more for the book in a, in a way that you didn't have to before. So you're choosing how 
you know, what the, the trim size is going to be because you want to keep the page kind of a little smaller so you can price it a little lower, but you want it to be a, a size that feels good to hold. And um, there's so many trade-offs involved in this that yeah, somebody just, as a traditional writer, somebody else is making those decisions. Yeah. And, and as an indie writer, you're making those decisions yourself. Part of the uh, the work I do for my clients is to you know to give them the instruction on this. Look, if I'm going to format your book, are you looking for more white space and increasing your page count, or are you looking to make your production costs smaller by decreasing page count and having less white space in your book? A lot of times, I'm finding that they they don't really seem to understand the concept until I show it to them, mm. and then they're like, no, 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 this doesn't look right, and it's like you have to redo the job all over again. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it's gonna cost them a lot more money if they do it the way that they envisioned it versus mm -hmm. the way it's gonna actually print. And so I, I do a lot of customer education now before I start doing work on clients' books to make sure that they absolutely understand this because it's going to affect your bottom line when you sell this book, how much that production cost is. Right. I have a I have a long-standing rule, and that is Lord save me from an artist's vision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just as guilty of it, I admit. But I mean, I'm throwing myself under the bus when I say that. But I, I completely understand. Like, this is this, this isn't what I pictured. Well, what you pictured is going to make this book cost ten dollars more. Oh, well, is that really going to be that important? Well, and then you got to go through that entire conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I've I can... said it so many times now. I have a word file that I just copy and paste. Here it is. Here's the breakdown on how the cost structure works based on your book's page count and what your royalties are and what the the um, was it uh, Amazon does sixty percent, but Ingram does up to fifty five percent discount for wholesaling. And, yeah, break it all down. Here's the mathematics. You tell me now. Do you really want to do what you just said? Yeah. <laughs> I think until you've done it once or twice, you really can't tell. No, that's true. Was, that's true. Um, my first print book on my own, I was getting all that advice from the person formatting it, but I just couldn't internalize it all until I really had the book in my hands. And then you, over time, I started to think, you know, I wish I'd made some different decisions about this. Yep. So I actually went back and redid that book, the first book of the, the series. Once I had the other books out, and, and, and when you get into audiobooks, it really changes the economics. Oh yeah, oh the yeah. More that's words, expensive the more one. costs. Yeah, that's yeah. an expensive one. Before we get to that, though, I do want to address. We have a, a question from the audience. Joe asks, "How do you reveal the scientific elements in using characters as opposed to exposition? Do you like to mostly use dialogue description?" or action, or a good combination of the both. This is back to our sci-fi talk we were having at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love a simple answer. That's yeah. perfect. That really is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you reveal some of it through the action. You re reveal it some of it through uh, the narrator's exposition, some of it through the character's dialogue. I think the key is to to sort of weave it so that you get little bits in different ways and the reader doesn't feel overloaded with any particular element of it. And it feels more natural that way, I think. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I think that's the key is it's gotta feel natural to the reader, not, not lumped in there just for show. Yeah, you're doing it, a, uh, think of it as maybe as a tapestry, not a, a big mosaic of huge chunks of things. I, I skirted around it a little bit. Uh, also, hello, Joe. I'm saying hi because one of my favorite people in the writing world. Glad to see him. 
Um, <laughs> I, I skirted around a little bit because I wrote science fantasy. Like in Catching Hell, it has two main protagonists, and the whole concept of the story is that one character goes into a world of magic, which I still explain with the basis of science, but for all intents and purposes, we're talking about a magic world. And the other one goes into a world of the technological and things that they had not really experienced up to that point. So I was able to explain some of the technological things using my magic jargon. And then I was able to explain some of the magic using my technological jargon. So there was just enough separation from reality that I could, I, I made magic, I think I made magic sound like technology and I made it sound like science. In the one instance where I did write a hard science fiction, which was a short story I had published last year, it was all show don't tell because I I had to I had to find a way to step away from what I was used to and how I was writing that. So it, it, it wasn't as I wasn't as loose with the rules. Hmm. Interesting. It's got to fit the story. It's, yeah. it's got to be something that the reader is going to understand well enough. And sometimes it takes a little bit more explanation. Sometimes it takes, you know, a character using a specific item and failing with it. And you show them not able to use that item to learn about it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it becomes natural in the story. You might I'm try sure. different ways for different pieces you write, too, just to test your own skills to see what you can do. Sometimes I really like... Um, things explained sufficiently that I really understand what's going on in the story. And other times a writer will take you on a ride and you really aren't entirely sure what's going on, but it's a fun ride and that has its own uh, appeal as well. You ever back your, your characters into a corner and now you have to get them out? <laughs> uh, and then and into corner. <laughs> <laughs> It's the problem. <laughs> it's the problem with being a pantser. Like I said, like I, you just kind of go off the rails and you just start to write things. And I still have that end goal in mind. And then I'm like a chapter and a half into a direction I thought was really great. And then I'm like, oh, well, this is going to bring this entire story to a halt, or it just doesn't make sense for the characters, or like like something. And then you have to go back, and you're just like chop save what you can, maybe save a, a good line or so or a decent scene, but I, I have absolutely hacked chapters out because it started to go into a direction that I didn't intend and it wasn't going to be helpful. And, and something you said right there, you cut it, but you can save it into a different file for use later. Because a lot of times those words are great. They might not be great for this story, but the words are good and have use and you can find a place to put them in somewhere else later down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I, I cut out an entire main character. I had written three protagonists for the story. I lived with them as they were as they were for about three years. And it was my personal realization that the story worked better as one goes one way, one goes the other, and not one in two, right? Like and then I had to cut, but there that character had some very key 
lines, it had some very key emotional moments, and it had to find a way to distribute those because it was still drawing the plot forward. Overall, I thought the character was worthless, so goodbye, Paul. But <laughs> he still hit some story beats that were necessary, so I have the Good original... Paul. And then, the, like the original files, and I just cut what I need, make sure it made sense with the character that I was giving it to. See, I find it hard to cut characters, but Jane, we know that, that you're just like done. Kill <laughs> <Build> them. Kill <laughs> <Build> them all. <laughs> yeah, last time I surprised her. I, I sent her, you know, a, a, a high point of the story, <laughs> the climax, and she was absolutely floored. I did not kill people. <laughs> that was my response. I went, everybody lived. What happened? <laughs> where did Jane go? <laughs> that was the twist. That was Jane's twist. <laughs> and, and if you're a reader of her books, that will definitely be the, the Shyamalan twist at the end. It'd be like, oh my God, hold on a second. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> and that's coming out in October. <laughs> that's, that's the reverse of the Shakespeare ending. Yes. <laughs> but it does set up for, for book two nicely. I still have another book to write. To thank I, my have no, I have no confidence in any of those characters left after, <laughs> once you get into book two. You've set them all up now. And if, I, if and when I was to read it, I would not anticipate any of them going to live. I just want to point that out. Well, and, and the key to, to you know, setting an enjoyable story is, is setting up your expectations and then throwing in that twist that's either going to make everyone cheer or make everyone go, oh, my God, and there's your reaction. That's that's what's really going to dig the nails into your readers. And yeah. Going. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Jer Jeffrey, you were going to say something. I keep wanting to say Jeremy Carver. <laughs> I won't answer. <laughs> <I'm> national, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what I was going to say. So. <laughs> That's okay. Why, what is your character kill count? <laughs> I don't kill characters too often. You know, the, uh, I was on a panel once with some some of the top writers in the in the field, and the question came up: Do you ever let your your characters ever try to take the story away from you? Hmm. And uh, I've one writer friend who had a book that was absolutely transformed in a good way by a character taking the story away from her. And another fantastic writer said, absolutely not, never. They try to take the story over, I kill them. I just kill them. <laughs> so it works either way. I generally have some idea when a character is going to die, but not always. Uh, sometimes I get surprised by it. I did have to go back and died. retroactively kill a, a character. Where <laughs> I realized some chapters in that, oh, one reason this doesn't feel right to me is something should have happened back then. <laughs> and this mm. character is no longer with us. So um, that was hard. That was hard. I get very emotionally attached to my characters. I, oh, so I do I. And, and I do too. I'm the same way. I, I wrote a character specifically meant to die in a story. And by the time I got to that moment, I couldn't do it. And then had to rewrite the beginning of that story over again to compensate for the lack of death in that character. And it actually it turned it up really well. I liked that. 
but originally that character was intended to die. And, and Mike here in the comments section says that he, he has a harder time trying to figure out, what is it, a better time trying to keep my characters alive rather than trying to figure out how to kill them. <laughs> Suicidal characters. I like a good emotional death. If there's going to be a death, it's got to be a, a, something that's really going to tug at the readers and make them feel something. And, and I still, to this day, in my very first series that I wrote, in book three, there's a death right off the bat from an established character that I have readers send me notes, hateful notes, that I killed this character. And, and because I know they're so emotionally in, invested in that character, I did my job right. Mm -hmm. and, and that death went on to push another character to do something. It had to happen. So I hit the right emotional notes for these readers to be like, I can't believe it. I absolutely hate you. And they still bought the next book because they had to find out what happened. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the hardest one for me to let go of was, was in, um, uh, Oh my God. <laughs> Anita says that her latest characters are immortal, so she can kill them multiple times. <laughs> but but at the ending of Fire, um, I want I keep saying Fire Starter. No, that's not it. Fire Cursed. <laughs> it's one of those days. I've been with a two-year-old all day. <laughs> at, at the end end of Fire Curse, that was a hard one for me. But it was the only logical ending and i can freely admit i have very little connection to any of my characters even the ones that are based on me which i have admitted a few times that death dresses poorly has two main characters one of which is kind of a 20 year old me and the other one is kind of a 55 60 year old me and what it would be like if those two personalities clashed together and a lot of what I've been writing is kind of a world that my mind has lived in since I was about 15 or 16 years old. But the things that inspired these characters and inspired these stories in the first place, the popular culture that I was watching or reading at the time, death was like common. It was, it was the same as just getting out of bed. So I was willing to kill characters and not get attached to them, knowing that their char the character's death will achieve something for like 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 you were saying, like you have to kill that character at the start of that book because it motivates somebody else, and that's probably the best possible reason to do it. Cause more to more than driving the story is that character's death. Even if you are completely in love with them is going to make another character even more enjoyable. It's going to make them even more, more rich. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have I have written a death scene that surprised me. I did not intend for it to happen. And after I wrote it, I reread it and I burst into tears. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I was writing so fast and the story was just taking off on its own. And then that happened. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what have I done? but I left it. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, perfect example of a story getting away with you. The characters yeah. are, are leading and you're essentially just a reporter at that yeah, point. I'm just, okay, I'm what's just, going on? Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it's recording the events. Mm -hmm. the, the counterpoint to what Katie was saying about creating a character for the purpose of 
killing the character off later. Um, <laughs> I sometimes introduce characters without really knowing why. Mm. And in, in this current book, a, a small animal became part of the, the company uh, on this adventure. And um, I really, I just, I wanted an animal on the ship. And she gradually became more and more important. And then um, I don't want to give anything away, but I guess I will. Um, Spoilers. Yeah. Let's just say that there's a heroic death in the book and it choked me up to write it. And no! No! completely unplanned. But Jane and I, we, we had conversations about that because we, we wrote, we co-wrote a series last year. Yes. And there was a point where <laughs> Jane was willing to have a death that I was not willing to accept. And we, had to, we had to go over that a few times. <laughs> yeah, we, had, we had to have a conversation. And we're like, okay, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, but it would, you know. And she's like, no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I had to put my foot down. I was like, you can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> the hazards of co-writing. Yeah. Well, I mean, think it, was, it was the best. Experience of a co-writing thing that I've ever had. So, well, outside of my son, <laughs> we, we have a very similar viewpoint. We write in very similar genres, and we both we're both analytical. So, when even though we're pantsers as we write, when it comes to these plot points that we hit, we look at it on every angle, and we had very lengthy discussions about, okay, this is what this outcome could be, and if you do this, this is the outcome, and so we would go over a lot of these points together and make our, our our valid arguments before mm -hmm. you know really putting the foot down saying this is or this isn't going to happen so right. it, that worked in our favor yes and we've been uh, beta reading for each other for years yeah, <laughs> so we're very familiar with each other's style yes <laughs> so <clears throat> what is rebecca saying it's page what it's page 10 where i killed people <laughs> no, she's making fun of me again. <laughs> you have Wait. to put that. You have to put the the one above that. Did I miss it? Hold on, let's see. <laughs> the the Shyamalan esque twist that surprised even you. Yeah, see, that's the thing as a pantser, you're you're experiencing the story in real time with your characters. Mm -hmm. And even though you may have an idea of where you want it to go, it doesn't go that direction. You have that that moment of excitement that you hope your readers feel when yeah. you write it. You know, yeah. if it really gets you, you know it's it's this way instead of this way. <laughs> oh, I like that. Co-writing is like mm. playing chess. Your move. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we were more like leapfrog. Yeah, we did. We, we were definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing about being a pantser is, is you can write yourself into a corner. And I think you guys have all experienced that at some point, right? Where you've written something, not 100% sure of where it's going. And then you hit that wall and you're like, ah, crap. Well, with the For me, it feels less like a corner and more like heading off on a detour that's wandering into the wilderness. And I'd better come back and take mm -hmm. a different fork. Yeah the road yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, I think it's the main reason i would have a problem co-writing anything I, it's not something that i've ever done before but so far at least for all the stories that i've written i i know how i'm going to get to my end and i'm going to try and get there on my own I, i'm not against the possibility of co-writing something i just 
I'm so married to my process that I think I'd have a really hard time letting somebody else in. And and that's true. That's true. Not all co-writing relationships are good. Um, it, it's it's kind of like a marriage. You have to be willing to compromise. You have to be willing to see the other person's viewpoint, and you both have to have a similar vision for where that story is going to go. And if any one of those components isn't there, it doesn't then, work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. And now, yeah. thankfully, we're on the same page, and we feed off of each other. So. Yeah, and that's why we leapfrogged. I would run into the wall, and she would find the bridge between where I stopped and the next chapter, yep. which was Good. perfect. Good. And, and vice versa, you know, if I had other scenes, you would find the bridge. It was just, it was an amazing experience, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, eventually we do need to write another one. Yes. But but it, it's true that not all of those relationships work out. It's very yeah. hard to find two authors who are compatible enough to have the same vision and write the story. And we did three in six months. Yeah. We did a, a whole series in a very short period of time because we were on that wavelength together. Mm -hmm. it was awesome. <laughs> it's like a marriage. I'm screwed. Joe says. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, Joe. We love you. Aww. Oh, and Rebecca says it's symbiotic writing. I like that too. Have any of you written in somebody else's world? I've done that a couple of times. And that's that's, that's another one that's hard. I mean, I, I, I did fan fiction on Supernatural for, for the show just because it, I wanted to. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, it, it's kind of tough to write in somebody else's world. Um, I've written in a... Um, uh, uh, a series that uh, we had 17 different authors and we did 17 different books, but ha had to adhere to this one world. So I've done that mm -hmm. too. So yeah, it is, it is tough to stick to something that you didn't create. <laughs> I, I've done it just a couple of times. And uh, most recently uh, the latest version of Battlestar Galactica that was done by the sci-fi channel. Um, I wrote the, official novelization of the miniseries, the four-hour miniseries that kicked it off. Mm -hmm. And I found it to be a really kind of fun experience because I had I had just finished drafting a book of my own that was complicated and, and like the creative side of my brain was just wrung out. Mm -hmm. And I got to write a story where it was all about, it was all about the craft. It was about making the story kind of sparkle and interesting but not having to come up with the story because it was already there. Mm. And I, I kind of enjoyed that as a sort of a busman's holiday from the kind of writing I usually did. And, um, and the readers seemed to like it. And uh, it was interesting to have to be constrained by someone else's world and where their world didn't make sense to me as the prose writer, things that made sense on the TV screen didn't always make sense when you thought about it on the page and mm -hmm. trying to navigate that and change it just enough to satisfy me, the reader, I don't know about the other readers, um, without making it feel like I was violating what the TV show just had done. enough did. to make it your own without, you know, you know. Uh, yeah, you and I, <laughs> Yes. And I haven't written in someone else's world when it comes to like a novel or even a short story, but uh, I have been a member of a writing crew for uh, a video game in 
continuing developments. So uh, two very good friends of mine had crafted the story for a video game that they're working on and they brought me on as an environmental writer. So I had to craft locations, side characters, and those kinds of things. So I was still playing in their sandbox, but I was bringing some of my own toys. And that was a lot of fun because, especially with a video game, I could say, here's this giant set piece, or here's these kinds of characters. And then they, as the designers of the game, could say, do you know how difficult that's going to be to computer animate? And, and to let's see how we compare this down a little bit. So I could take those complicated <laughs> ideas and I could try and like siphon out all the really good stuff and turn it into something that they could actually produce without breaking the bank on an independent video game. <laughs> yeah. I think I would have the hardest time writing in another person's world. Uh, I would be worried about screwing it up, I think, because mm. if somebody's gone to the, you know, they, they've created the world, they've created the depth of the world, the rules of the world. If there's a magic system, the rules of that magic system. And and you really have to adhere to that to, to remain in their world. And, and I would be so afraid of stepping out of line or messing up or, or, breaking one of those rules and then you have you know readers who will call you out on it because they pay very close attention when it's a world they absolutely love so i i've not wanted to delve into writing other people's stuff readers paying attention is a sort of interesting thing when i wrote the the battlestar galactica book there were certain things that weren't in the original and in a, in a phone conference with the producers i said for remember um have you all seen it, it um the, the TV show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's this this sexy blonde six who's a Cylon. And um, I said, she's never given a name. And I find it hard to believe that, that, that this guy Baltar has been carrying on with her for who knows how many weeks and months. He must call her something. And they said, well, make up a name for her if you want. So I did. And a name just popped into my head, which was Natasi. I thought it sounded sort of sort of sexy and sort of sinister all at the same time. And I didn't think any more about it. And then shortly after the book was published, someone brought my attention to a, a BSG uh, website where people discussed this stuff in intimate detail. And they were talking about how the writer of the novelization had called her Natasi, which was I Satan spelled backwards. <laughs> what did this mean? <laughs> and, and was it canonical? <laughs> the agreement was, was it was not canonical. canonical. <laughs> Whoa, what is canonical? Isn't that the great question we all wrestle with? Well, and if you if you're part of a fandom, you know, Battlestar Galactica, yes. Star Trek, Star Wars, all of these major Absolutely. IPs that have fandoms that span for years and years, they do. They dissect every little thing. And is this part of canon? Is this not? How does this fit? Doesn't this this doesn't fit because why? And and they make YouTubers make living off of, you know, dissecting these things. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And it's not something I think previous generations have dealt with. Well, it's, it's only so long in our history of popular culture that we've even been embracing these kinds of massive worlds, right? Like we can look back, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in the, the, the mid seventies. I mean, obviously we had science fiction and obviously we had fantasy and those kinds of things before that, but okay. So the mid seventies comes along, the big summer blockbuster is created and now we're dealing with worlds of star Wars. And although kind of niche in its day, star Trek is now producing motion pictures. So that world is growing as well. And 
the media grows and it grows and it grows and so does its fandom and now you're going to have the the people who sit there with a magnifying glass and they're saying well this is an ever so slightly different spelling than what the character had in this novelization that was like five years ago and <laughs> they're going to tear it apart that you kind of well, have to separate yourself internet. out of it. Yeah, it is you now. You have absolutely. the internet for people to talk about these things earlier. You had fanzines and things, but once all this stuff went online, it changed the dynamics of it completely, I think. Absolutely. I, I can imagine back in Shakespeare's time, people going down to the pub and discussing the play they just saw. Yeah. But not yeah. in the same depth that we do today. Right. And you're right. The, the internet, the anonymity angle of the internet allows for more freedom of speech without any kind of uh, repercussion. So people are braver about what That's they true say. Too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hiding behind their icons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about audiobooks before we. We yeah. should, because we're towards the end of the show and, and let's, let's just dive right into it. So you're making an audiobook right now for your latest book. Um, yes. I, well, you say I'm, I'm, uh, You're producing I say it. it. I have arranged for an audiobook to be made by. Um, if you're if you're a follower of audiobooks, you've probably heard Stefan Rudnicki's voice. He's one of the top narrators in the field, and um, <clears throat> he had done the narration of the first book of the series, which was kind of a standard publishing arrangement. Um, but um, the publisher who backed it didn't want to do any more, so in the end, I I hired him. To do the rest of the series, and he's right now halfway through doing the new duology, and um, it's an investment, considerable investment of money, but also time and thought. I'm um, listening to his recording in the first book and marking spots that like, little tweaks have to be made, and, and then getting it out, um, distributing it to to the readers is a whole nother level. I'm working both through ACX and through Findaway Voices. Uh, Findaway has a wide, a wide audience. Uh, ACX does a faster and I think better job of getting it into Audible, which is kind of like it's Am like Amazon. It's the biggest chunk of the audience. So now, you, as a question for, for our audience members to really get an idea of the cost that's involved with producing an audiobook, just ballpark, you don't have to give specific numbers, are you using a per finished hour method of compensation? Yes. And what is the approximate for a per finished hour? I think because I, I opted to go with one of the top guys. So it's a lot more than you might pay uh, another narrator. And I think it's $400 per finished hour. Um, so we're talking for a long book. It's, it can be as much as five to $6,000, mm -hmm. um, which I hope to recoup while I'm still breathing. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if not, we my all. children will. Yeah. Uh, but then any income from that is mine for forever. Well, for the duration right. of copyright, I guess. Um, and that's certainly there, that but there are lots of ways to do it for less money. If you want to work with uh, maybe a newer narrator who doesn't have the track record and doesn't command quite so much. Also, he's not just a great narrator. He works with a director. He works with an engineering crew that produces the finished book. And it's a little bit different from hiring someone who's going to uh, direct him or herself and uh, do the editing and so on. 
And there's no right way to do this. I just, um, I wanted to do it in the way that was most satisfying to me. So that's what I've done with it. Yeah, and when you produce a, an audiobook at this level, you're the project manager. You're guiding the production of it. They still have their bit, their, their nuts and bolts they've got to do. They've got to do the readings. They've got to have the audio engineer physically take those tracks and make them perfect and link them and space them out appropriately. So there, there's yes. a lot behind the scenes that they're doing. You're just guiding the direction of how this works. Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. And, and to Mike's comment about price, um, there is a discrepancy on price because, like like Jeffrey was saying, you're you're picking a producer or a, a person to read your story who's going to have their own income per finished hour, mm -hmm. and that could include their engineer. It could not. So somebody who is more in demand is always going to cost more than somebody who is newer to the field. So your right. cost will vary. Your cost can also vary depending on what model you choose. Whether it's you pay upfront for the book to be done whether you do a royalty share agreement or whether you do a hybrid of the, the two where you pay a certain amount up front and then share a percentage of royalties for whatever length of the contract is. So you really want to understand what you're getting into and look at all the models before you make a decision on how to do it. And that's going to decrease or increase what your cost is. Right. And, and if you're going through the hybrid model or the royalty share, you're locked in for seven years. Yeah. Once and, that and goes live. There's some fine print most people don't see is that there's a, a time period that you're locked into it. Seven years can be a very long time, especially if you're a series author and you're trying to get all of your books done by one producer, or perhaps you started working on it and you don't, don't or can't work with that producer again and you've got two or three more books in that same series. You're right. locked in for those that are done for seven years. So you really yeah. got to read your contracts carefully. Yes, and, and for the new people going out to ACX, um, I mean, when I was new in, into it, they were offering bounties, but they could only be for a certain period of time. So I had multiple author, I mean, multiple narrators in a single series, which I just got rights back and I'm, I'm having somebody else redo it. But at that point in time, I didn't, I didn't outlay any cash. So I, I, you know, I had to be at the mercy of the, um, narrators at that time. And I had a lot of good ones, but I wanted the consistency and I had to wait for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might point out that, that, that most of my um, list of books, I've written 18 books, and most of those were actually um, sold by my agent to Audible years ago mm -hmm. and said no cost to me. I, I mean, I got a modest advance for it. Um, which was good because it got them into audiobook, but man, not necessarily so good because I had no say over who did the narration. Mm -hmm. And I was really happy with some of the narration and not so happy with others. Right. And so someday there are some books I hope to redo, but. Uh, yeah, I have, I, I've, I've been lucky to find some really good ones that started off as royalty share, but are now starting to charge, but they're mm -hmm. good enough to remain with because they're always professional. They're they always hit their marks. They always, you know, make it engaging. So it's like, mm, yep, <laughs> reach into the pocket here. <laughs> <laughs> and you want the voice that's right for your story too, right? Not exactly. all voices are right for all stories. So. Exactly. 
I don't know if Find Away Voices has a better royalty share agreement. I just know that they offer different royalty shares. Well, that's an, I can address that coming. question. I um, Royal Find Away does have a better royalty share for their extended marketplace. However, if you're going to be, um, I mean, Audible for most people, I think, has the lion's share in the market, and you will get more on your Audible sales if you take your books through ACX as a non-exclusive. I mean, you get the highest royalty if you go exclusive with them, but I didn't want to go exclusive with them. So um, find a way when they distribute to Audible, also use ACX. So you're actually getting a little less royalty on the ACX money through find a way, but better royalties on the Nook, the uh, ebook store, the, the iTunes, a lot of the other markets. So it's not really obvious which is giving you the better royalty deal. Now, ACX did change their um, their platform a little bit this summer. They used to give you the the 25, I think, uh, audio codes to distribute, to get review copies out there to people. And yeah. you used to actually earn a royalty on those. They no longer do that. And that actually halted one of the productions on my books. I was doing the three Little Werewolf books and my producer for the first two and I were just doing it as a royalty share, but because the cost involved and recouping wasn't happening as fast because I no longer had the ability to get any of my review copies, uh, royalties earned on them, which usually those would go instantly. So it was like an instant income after a book would come out. Um, she said we had to hold off because the cost to her by using an engineer to help make sure that sound quality is actually absolutely perfect. Even if we're royalty share, she still has to pay her engineer, which I completely understand. So we're holding off until we can do a better, you know, a um, little bit upfront royalty share model so I can use her again. And that just means I can't do anything until I have the money. Mm -hmm. So the little things and little changes that the companies make can affect whether or not you're going to be able to do that next book with that same producer, or if you have to hold off a little bit, Right. So I'd be interested in knowing if you have any good tips on uh, the marketing, getting audiobooks reviewed and um, that sort of thing, because that's, that's another tough nut to crack. That is a very hard one. That would probably take a full episode for us to go over. <laughs> so we might have to bring you back on, Jeff, for that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I'll be all ears. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of that, we are at the end of our show. So I want to just offer you guys a few minutes real quick before we do our, our end of show. And just let us know if you have anything you want the audience to uh, be aware of, any books you have on sale. Um, just take, a, you know, whatever time you need. Mark, go ahead and go first. Thank you. Uh, I do have a book, as I said, coming out. It's Between Conversations, Tales from the World of Reusion. It is my short story collection of nine different stories that all take place in a different genre built into the same world. And the stories are told chronologically. So starting in the year 1600 with uh, historical fantasy and moving all the way to thousands of years into the future because as a fantasy writer obviously i have destroyed the world a number of times and so it's talking about how did the world is dealing with that without dealing with the main characters i also have the books that those are from that's my yeah i'm holding them up here there we go that's my me, catching me... hell books there we go thank you so that's catching hell part one part one and catching hell part two so those start the world of Ryujin, and then 
there's my little darling and you have to excuse it because it has green on the cover actually I'll put it over here it's got green on the cover so obviously it's being eaten up by my green screen but actually it kind of looks kind of cool, like really cool. I, think. I think it looks really cool like that so this is my urban fantasy urban fantasy dark comedy death dresses poorly and i like to say that this is the writing is similar to douglas adams with a significant amount more swearing um <laughs> So that is what I've got going on. And Between Conversations will be out on September 25th. You can find it right now to pre-order on Amazon. Awesome. Awesome. And that, that book cover does look really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <you're> right. <laughs> All right. Sending it over to Jeffrey. Go ahead. Uh, well, you can find me at starrigger.net and uh, read all about my different books. Um, I have a series that's called The, the Star Rigger Universe, which is quite separate from Chaos Chronicles, as well as a number of standalones and some short stories. Uh, I do, from time to time, run BookBub specials on some of my eBooks, so that's a good way to um, get get a, a quick look at something if you want to give my books a try. And also, the first book of the Chaos Chronicles, Neptune Crossing, is uh, permanently free as an eBook. So you risk nothing by going to the eBook store of your choice and downloading Neptune Crossing and see whether you like the series. And if you do, keep reading, please, and tell your friends. And, then, and that's an actually one of the best marketing tips a lot of people will tell you is to have a reader magnet like that, something that is free that gives people the opportunity to try before they buy and see if they like you as an author. So that's, that's excellent. Now, we will be putting the links for both of you guys and in our show notes on our YouTube page so people can easily click and find them and hopefully pick up your books. And we are actually at time right now. So that was like perfect. But before we go, we've got to give a shout out to Rebecca Jonesy. She is our other sponsor, which allows us to stream this wonderful show on both platforms, Facebook and on YouTube. So Rebecca Jonesy is the author of Realistic Fantasies, Both Sexy and Killer. Her link will also be in the show notes below at the end of our show. So check her books out as well as check out Go Indie Now and their new shows starting on September 6th. Until then, guys. We've had a wonderful show. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you.